Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. David, I wondered about this for a long time, and certainly when I was younger and these events were more recent in my memory, it wasn't so much of an issue. But now we're looking at some of the most important things we've talked about on the show involve events that are 50 and 60 years old, like Roswell, like the UFO flap in 1952, like Flatwoods, Aztec, New Mexico. And each year we hear more and more stuff, but we don't know whether the years have inflated the stories or not, and whether the basic stories was anything like the stuff that we hear now. And you have to wonder, we had the O'Hare sighting back in 2006. Why are we worrying about 1947? What do you think? Well, there are a couple of reasons for that, Gene. I suspect that a large part of it is because you've got so many people who have spent so much time looking at some of these original cases, like Roswell, that simply there's a body of research that spans 20, 30 years that exists that can't be denied. I mean, Generally, I agree with you. I think that there are more recent cases that are much more compelling, certainly, in terms of having witnesses that are alive and maybe even available. Things like, uh, not the Phoenix Lights episode, but the big crap that was seen earlier that evening. I think that's really relevant. Or the many things that have been going on in Central and South America over the last 20 or 30 years. I've talked about some of my experiences along those lines, but... There's a huge body of uh, evidence out there that you, know, you think about when we had Roger Lear on talking about Virginia in Brazil, or even the Bentwaters case, which is probably one of the most important contemporary cases, and for which there exists a good amount of documentation, including a bunch of stuff that has appeared on the British Ministry of Defense's website. So I think there are a lot of cases in recent years to talk about, but you know, as a story lives longer, it does gain more traction. And I mean, my own feeling about the Roswell case is that I, I tend to agree with a lot of people who look at it critically and say that maybe this has now passed from being potentially a useful case to mere mythology. There's so much noise around it, Gene, that uh, it really is hard now to try to get to any real core. But the simple fact of the matter is that we live on a planet where exercises and branding happen all the time, and the Roswell brand is a very strong one. It's hard in our civilization as it stands today to fight against the brand. Roswell is a brand. Right. So you get, that's the get Roswell beer oh, or something God. like that. There's a Roswell beer, I think, as a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen. I am not a beer drinker, you know. So seriously, so I don't know about such things, but apparently there was a Roswell beer. And of course, you know, a lot of companies use aliens and UFO brandings. So, for example, Alienware, that's the company right. that makes PCs that was purchased by Dell some time back. Of course, Alienware has UFO-oriented PCs for gamers. Of course, gamers play space shoot 'em up games, so maybe it's apropos. But I wonder if at the heart of it, the people who run Alienware are really UFO fans. Oh, yeah. You know, ultimately, again, it's back to branding. If they think that their demographic is one that's interested in this content, uh, they're going to go for it. I think that in the case of the Alienware brand and uh, the marketing of that hardware, uh, it simply gave them a whole futuristic spin to do the marketing. And I think that that's something that they felt appealed to their demographic gene. You know, there's been a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists out there who say that the proliferation of alien imagery in our culture 
on a mass level is being done to quote unquote prepare us for disclosure. I don't really believe that. I, I have to tell you, I, I think that that is a real bit of a stretch. I think that ultimately it comes down to what marketeers think is going to sell stuff. I don't think that marketing, if you look at, you know, the big ones like, um, YNR and, you know, that's Young and Rubicam. They're, I guess they're probably still the world's biggest advertising agency. I, I have to wonder whether or not they design campaigns for companies to sell more stuff or to fulfill some weird underground covert government operation to disseminate alien imagery and to get these metaphors out there for people to assimilate and for people to uh, to, to sort of follow. I, well, I don't you have to look at it this way, though. Maybe the people over at the advertising agencies are not directly being influenced, but there are ways to influence them. I mean, yeah, you have to look at this now mm -hmm. as we, and this may be the natural evolution of the species, I don't know, but over the years, we from the time we dismissed the possibility of life on Mars, now we know there is water there, maybe below the surface, but now, wait a minute, it has come above the surface. We have what? Well, we have life. Maybe they're down there in the caves on the planet Mars or Barsoom, as people who read Edgar Rice Burroughs would refer to it. I don't know, but it makes it more acceptable to think about this. We look at other star systems and we see so-called Earth-like planets and we say, you know what? We could see life everywhere in the universe. And well, more we, acceptance you know the, of this fact, no, no, as you no. say, natural evolution of, well, of our it, studies and everything. Stop but, for a minute. I mean, what we have is science that says, hey, you know what? Hydrogen uh, exists throughout the universe. Yeah, well, we knew that. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. We have oxygen all over the place. You have hydrogen, you have oxygen. Water's not a far step from that. As our ability to look out into the cosmos increases, you know, look at what Hubble was able to reveal to us about the nature of the universe. Sure, we discover more stuff, more facts about what the universe is made of. Anybody, Gene, that was going to look at the Earth and the sun and this solar system and believe for any moment that this was somehow unique. I mean, I think that's an exercise in silliness. Anybody who ever looked up into the sky has to know better. Look, we, there are certain things we do know. Binary star systems do appear to be more common than singular star systems. Yes. Are we a, a soul star system? Yeah, it appears so. Does that make us unusual? Well, that's all relative. I mean, we know that there are other single star systems beyond our own. Look at our galaxy. Gee, it's a fairly mundane galaxy amongst hundreds of billions of galaxies. Anybody, and we've played this game on the show before, Gene, anybody who's going to look at the cosmos, look up at the sky at night and tell me that, or tell anybody, the Earth is unique or that our, our stellar system is somehow an aberration of nature. I mean, that's just ridiculous human vanity, man. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of UFOs, recent and not so recent, there is a gentleman, Scott Corrales. Am I saying that right? Just tell me. Corrales, man. Stop, Corrales. All right. We have this gentleman, Scott Corrales, who has been studying Latin American UFO cases for a long, long time. I'm the legacy. And as a matter of fact, he said that Venezuela has had an interesting UFO history, and maybe he has some information about the sighting that you and your brother and your family had back in the 1970s, you know? Well, certainly he'll be able to tell us about other UFO events in Venezuela in the 70s. 
There's a bunch of them, Gene. Uh, South and Central America have been longtime hotspots for all sorts of UFO activity. I asked some specific questions for Scott about some of the other regions of South America, things like the Canaima region, which is where the, that one really interesting UFO photo that uh, turns out Bruce McAbee had looked at had surfaced from. And I, that image has really captured my interest and, and, and my fascination. I think it's one of the most compelling UFO photographs that exist. There's a ton of stuff from that area. When I started looking into Kanaima, I found that there's so much activity down in that region that there's a tour guide down there who has uh, compiled a map of all of the different types of sightings. We're talking about a vast region that is very old and uh, for the most part not really explored. So and this is something, Gene, that I think is really fascinating. People assume that we have covered all of the surface of the Earth, that, that humans have visited every square inch of this planet, and that is simply not the case. I'll be fascinated to talk to Mr. Corrales about what research he's done, certainly in Venezuela, but throughout all of South America. This is uh, Argentina. This la The last couple of years has had some crazy activity. I know that Scott has written a bunch about that, so I can't wait to get him on. Coming up next on... You're not the Paracast! The Paracast! Coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, leave me a message, I will call you back, or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's, I listen to the Paracast, here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Scott, you've been researching the South American and Central American UFO situation for a long time. Why do you think it is that most people interested in UFOs, for example, in the United States, don't seem very knowledgeable? about what's been going on in South America for the last number of decades. Well, you know what, David, this, is, this has always been, I think, one of the things that first drew me into, I guess, playing a more active role in the field and just being, you know, just someone else reading magazines and reading books. Mm-hmm. And I think it all had to do, when I read Jacques Vallée's, uh, I forget the name of that book, Dimensions, and he mentioned that one of the key authors in the Spanish Latin American uh, field of the paranormal, Salvador Cristiano, had never been translated into English. And I figured, oh, that that can't be. That has to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, did a book search, of course. Whatever was available in the eighties, we had no internet. You had to actually call bookstores. Yeah. And um, you actually had no bookstores then, which was really That's a dime. Well, yeah. I mean, sure. Now we're dating ourselves. <laughs> okay. But no, but seriously, and then I realized that it, it, if some such key information is not available to an English reader, then what else might not be out there? Then I realized that, but for some people who had followed um, the Latin American UFO developments in the seventies, let's say people reading Flying Saucer Review. I'm trying to think maybe some folks along the border were listening in on Pedro Feliz in Mexico, mm-hmm. having his own UFO radio and TV shows. They might have known, but it, as a rule, there's always been this very, very nativist, very provincial side to UFO. I mean, we can welcome our brothers from another planet, but God forbid they should be from across the border or from <laughs> across the sea in Spain. We just don't want to hear it. So that's been one of the, that's been the brick wall that I've been hitting myself against since 1990. You know, how do you get the information across? Luckily, you know, thanks to the internet, we're able to do it a lot easier. But just trying to interest people, let's say in manuscript for my translations of Fechado in the early 90s, or my own articles and book projects, the response I would always get is, well, shouldn't you be writing it in Spanish for people in those countries? Like, why don't you just take your problem right across somewhere else where people want to hear about it? We want to hear about Roswell. See, that's just crazy. That's (laughs) Well, and the thing is, with all of the contemporary cases that have happened in South America, I mean, all I have to think about is the incredible UFO wave over Mexico City in the 90s. This is probably one of the most significant waves in modern times. And, uh, you know, this is right across the border from the United States. How can it be that there isn't a tremendous amount of interest on part of UFO researchers here in the States to simply hop on a plane or hop in a car and drive down? It's, it's relatively close, especially if you live in Texas or Arizona. 
But I'm guessing if you're going to hop across the border, you want to do something fun. You want to get drunk or do something to that effect. Why drive all you the way to You can't get drunk city? in the United States, so, man. We have we have alcohol here. I um, know, but people like yeah. that lawless south of the border thing. We want to drive over to you know Piedras Negras and get drunk, <laughs> you know, whatever. No, 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 no. I, I but, like going for 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 bad burritos in Tijuana. Um, <laughs> don't get me so we. I used to drive down to Tijuana. All the time for fun with a friend of mine, Chuck. Uh, we would just go down there for the day and buy silver. It was just, we're just crazy. But no, seriously, I mean, you've got Mexico City during the 90s. You have a huge amount of video evidence, photographic evidence. You have sightings that were going on every week. How can it be that American UFO researchers didn't take an active interest in that? You know, we go right back to the same thing. Um, even though you had to hop a plane, for example, to go to Puerto Rico, that's the U.S., uh, like it or lump it. And a, no one during the great UFO wave of 87 through right before the Chupacabras appeared, like 1994, very, very few people ever went down to Puerto Rico to see what was going on. Later that decade, started having entire tours, let's say tours of non-specialized folks going down to Laguna Cartagena, for example, to see um, the alleged UFO base that existed under the lagoon of complete impossibility. UFO base? What is this? Tell us about this. Uh, there's a UFO base, allegedly. That was part of the, the mystique of the area in this very shallow lagoon in southwestern Puerto Rico. People reportedly saw all kinds of lights emanating from the lagoon. This is from 1987 through about 1994. It became a major focus of attention for the island's UFO community. But very, very few researchers, I don't know, uh, Linda Howe may have gone around the time the Chupacabras became big. You had us a lot of, a lot of tours of non-specialized uh, UFO buffs going down in the late 90s. But researchers, I can't think of one who went down at the time. So even if it was just a matter of catching a plane and coming to a predominantly English understanding island under the U.S. flag, no one so it just comes back down to that. There's this linguistic cultural disconnect that I think, at least in the UFO community, frightens people very much. Hmm. Now, meanwhile, we've had on the show a number of times A.J. Gavard, who's a friend of the show and obviously does the uh, UFO magazine out of Brazil. Of course, I've always, we've always found that that's very uh, sort of frustrating in that here he is publishing a magazine in Portuguese, Right. Which is such a small subset of the the you know the the Latino market you know and I've in in my private emails to him I've said you know you should certainly put this English magazine into English but for crying out loud man at the least make it Spanish because with Portuguese <laughs> you've got you know exactly two countries in the world that are native in Portuguese and then look at the rest of the Spanish speaking world I mean. So, you know, clearly, yes, the Internet is a way to sort of get around these language barriers. But unfortunately, we don't have really the, the useful equivalent of the universal translator on the Internet at this point that would give us perfect translations of any and all sites. It's still a pipe dream that still doesn't really exist. That's right. Absolutely. But, I mean, if, if you just think about them, uh, let's say authors who did their best work. At the time, I mean, when you were living in Venezuela, for example, you had so many magazines in different countries, from Mexico, Santo Domingo, Puerto Rico. I'm not sure. Well, Argentina had a very big magazine that I remember. Spain had several. And these were all just constantly churning out information, and they had their own experts. And we still have a lot of photographs that get 
circulated around the around the internet from from those days. Yet no one paid attention. Uh, there was a lady, I think her name was Jane Thomas. She would translate articles or whatever going on in in, in, in Argentina to send over to England for flying saucer review. So most of the cases that I remember from the 70s in English came through FSR. Sometimes you'd get them from the French magazines, from Lumière de la Nuit. But, uh, you know, there just always seemed to be, um, I'm not going to say an aversion, that's a very strong word, but it's like, well, you know, number one, it's too weird. Their cases seem to be full of high strangeness and maybe just uh, somehow disquieting to an American sensibility. So that being the case, Scott, does that to your mind suggest that there is a psychological component to UFO sightings that is the unspoken, uncomfortable part of research where when you say high strangeness, this is a term that is of a lot of interest to the audience of the Paracast. It's of a tremendous degree of interest to Gene and myself because some of the most compelling cases that we've talked about and some of the most compelling witnesses that we've, we talk to on a regular basis, this is an element that keeps coming up over and over, high strangeness, where there are things that um, the unspoken parts of UFO reports that don't get talked about because even people who are active in the community, for example, here in the States, they don't want to step over that boundary and talk about things that break out of the mold. Does that to you suggest that perhaps there is some portion of the UFO phenomenon that is highly subjective, that is indeed perhaps a projection of individual minds and not an objective reality? Well, I don't know about the coming from an individual minds part, but I will say that you're absolutely correct in your assessment. I think that the part that, let's say, that you, you, the part of ufology or this discipline, field of study, whatever, that you could actually dress up and take dancing would be the 10% of the iceberg. That would be the tip. Mm -hmm. uh, the rest is underwater, and what's underwater is very large and very ugly. And that would be the high strangeness. Quotient. I think a lot of people have deliberately, even I've been told, you know, you can't omit this from whatever article you're writing or we're not quite interested because now this moves away from, number one, the good old nuts and bolts approach to ufology. We want them to be from a planet in space. We can relate to that. We have been, we've grown up with Star Trek. We've grown up reading Arthur C. Clarke. The minute you start saying strange hairy creatures came out of a UFO or people were witnessing a, a, an apparition of the Virgin Mary and UFO entities materialized. That the, once you start deviating from, um, uh, you know, let's say the goalposts, once right. that ball is out of bounds, we don't want to hear it. We don't even want to know. Well, that was a problem they had years ago with Major Donald Kehoe, for example, the premier UFO researcher of the 50s. How close will Donald Kehoe let a UFO get? I remember there was an article about that. If a UFO got too close, he wouldn't take it seriously. <laughs> well, I think that you could extrapolate that. I think the minute that you start getting a mix of elements in a single sighting, a single case, a landing, automatically, let's say, it'll be rejected out of hand by the non-specialized uh, reader, viewer, listener, but the researcher who should be open-minded or at least to the point, be interested enough to just put it in his or her field notebook. They'll say, no, wait a minute, we'll just put their pencil down and say, that's it, interview's over. Thank you very much for your time. Because they want, I guess, what's going to be 
acceptable is a word I keep coming up with. Mm-hmm. But I'm just trying to see if it's conventional or just something that reinforces the prevalent point of view about phenomenon, something yeah. to that effect. We don't have that prejudice here on the Paracast, Scott. We're okay. more than willing. No, yeah, absolutely. We're 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 interested in actually trying to understand this stuff, not reinforcing or defending specific positions. Uh, we're not doing that here. Now, I, I'd like to ask you about something for a moment because you made a reference to small hairy creatures. And when I lived in Venezuela in the 70s, I spoke to people down there about a case that happened back in the 1950s in Caracas that involves indeed just that, these small hairy beings. Could you explain to our audience, I, I suspect you know which case I'm talking about. Yes, I do. This was a uh, truck driver and his assistant who, uh, if I remember correctly, they saw a light, they got off uh, out of the truck, they saw these small, hairy aliens. One of the two men tried to wrestle with one of the creatures, stabbed it with a knife, the knife bent, the creature threw him quite a distance. And... Then both beings, I think, went back into the light, retreated into that object or light, and took off. But the man, I remember his name was Jose. That, that's, that's part of the case that I remember. Right. Um, Jose Ponce and... Taken. That's it. it was, uh, this was in 1954. It was two gentlemen, Gustavo Gonzalez and Jose Ponce. Ponce, that's right. That's right. There you go. And that was always um, held up as a landmark case of... South America being visited by very small, very violent humanoid entities. And I mean, if you go back to the books of uh, Jim and Cora Lawrence, UFOs over the Americas, flying saucer occupants, UFOs here and now, uh, you always do seem that that was a South American paradigm, that France would get these blonde-haired, very Cartesian visitors who would kiss each other on the cheek and then get back, go back into the saucers, whatever. South America would get either very towering, screaming giants, like in Brazil and Argentina, were these small, hairy characters who wouldn't mind wrestling with you. And if you pulled a knife on them, you know, God help you. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You are in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking to Scott Corrales, who has explored UFOs and other phenomena in Latin America. Do you think, though, that maybe one of the reasons that American UFO researchers 
have problems with Latin America is some kind of xenophobic kind of attitude that, you know, we can't take those guys seriously down there and therefore we only pay attention to our own sightings. Do you think there's a little bit of that going on? It just seems, I think, for a while maybe, and I think that the Latin American tabloid press, which I mean could give uh, World Weekly News a run for the money, certainly had a lot to blame. I mean, South America became the place where people have heads growing up from under their arms and such. And a lot of the cases that were clearly for just tabloid fodder got presented, and you know, I've been sometimes accused of doing that myself. I, I can't tell what's coming over the transom in fact. I have to trust the people that collaborate with the inexplicata in the respective countries. I, I go by whatever their criteria happens to be. When you look at it, I don't think it's xenophobia. I think it's a, 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 an editorial assistant that one of the publishing houses said, look, we have our cases, they have their cases, why can't they keep their cases to themselves, basically? We want to hear more about either Roswell or let's look at Pascagoula again, let's look at alien abductions, but strictly from a U.S., maybe Canada, maybe Great Britain, not too much. But let's, let's keep it local. It's like a small-town newspaper that says, you know, people only want to read the local stories of local interest. And living in a small town, I can tell you that's exactly true. So there's that kind of provincial, and it's provincialism. More of a lack of, in, not xenophobia, more of a lack of interest in something that really goes beyond our city limits, so to speak. Well, but in the case of UFO research, certainly, and people who are interested in the paranormal, you would hope that that demographic of people would be more global in their outlook. And you would think that those people, especially now with the proliferation of the Internet, and not just the proliferation of the Internet in general, but, for example, broadband Internet access is now very common across a lot of the world. Uh, this summer I was down in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and uh, you see broadband internet access is now very common down there. So people are watching videos from around the world. YouTube is a global phenomenon. It is not provincial. The, the, the internet by nature is not provincial at all. And so we would think that now, given this new communications medium, that indeed this would open up the floodgates to of interest to things like what's been going down in South America for for many years, Scott. I mean, don't you find that now things are a little different? I think if we were talking, let's say, uh, broadband global access, the internet being a, a you know this worldwide means of diffusion of information. If we were talking about popular culture, let's say music, or let's say people watching movies, I, I'm 100% with you. Let's say people living in Spain probably know much more about American music and television than, than even we know ourselves. They follow it much more closely. I'm sure you saw the very same thing in Buenos Aires. But when it comes to something that's of marginal interest at best, if people within the UFO community don't feel motivated to know what's going on, let's say, uh, with Polish ufology, with uh, Peter Czelebiasz right there, he's a, an amazing source of information. People aren't aware that Poland has a very, very interesting set of UFO case histories. You know, why make that effort to go looking for it when YouTube, as you say, has hundreds of videos about Roswell and other things that are much more, I guess, germane 
to that person's experience, even if he or she happens to be deep into ufology. Well, Scott, that you know that brings up something that I've talked about on the show before, which is that uh, my family, myself, and many other people in the summer of 1974, in July of 1974, we were all witnesses to, um, to an amazing sighting in Caracas, Venezuela, of a cigar ship that emitted three smaller craft that surrounded it, and the whole thing vanished in front of our eyes. I don't have to repeat the story. I'll send you details about it in private email. Uh, this happened in 1974, and to my memory, the next day, after this happened, this was front page news in two of the main newspapers in the city. Now, I've talked to MUFON people here in the States. I've spoken to Peter Davenport at New Fork, and there is no recording of this episode in stateside UFO encounter databases. There's nothing, which makes me believe, Scott, that there are probably a lot more cases like this in South America that have never even been on the radar here in the States. And I'm wondering, when you think about these cases, let's talk about, for example, Venezuela in the 70s. Right. Are there, are there any cases that you've looked into or that you know, know about that jump out to you that, uh, that are large scale, that involve, let's say, hundreds of witnesses? Well, you know, right there, talking about Venezuela, I remember there was an excellent publication in the 70s called Contactos Extraterrestres, and I think it was published out of Mexico. And that would be the uh, the place to go. I'm trying to think right now of another publication, Mundo Desconocido, that would have been around at the time. I'll have to look for that 1974 time period. Mm -hmm. But there were so many cases, not just Mexico and Venezuela itself. There was one involving a UFO dogfight somewhere in Delta Macuro, I think, on the Orinoco River. And that was witnessed by an entire village and bargemen on the river and I guess you had wildlife officials, park rangers, people saw it. And the only source that I know mentions it at all is Salvador Frechero in one of his books. He lived in, um, in Caracas for a while and there was another, a landing in Barquisimeto on, on the water. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not sure if it was that early in the 70s or later on. I think you can divide the Caribbean Basin, let's say, ufologically. The earlier part of the 70s seemed to focus on activity in the Antilles. You had a lot of UFO activity, 72, 74, in Puerto Rico and Santo Domingo, some of it in Mexico. The latter 70s, 76 through 79, would have been Colombia, Venezuela, perhaps even Ecuador. You would have had some more cases there. But I can't think of any notable Venezuelan cases from that uh, from the time period that mm -hmm. you mentioned and have to look that up mm -hmm. all right now I, I ask this because again I there you know there are so many when I lived down there there were so many things that I heard about there was that one major sighting there were a couple of other smaller ones and a really messed up one that I haven't talked about on the show and probably will not that uh, because it's just a very disturbing episode to me but uh, I, I, I'm wondering Scott does this in any way correlate? You know, you have all of these episodes down there. One of the things I can I, I can probably say safely about South America compared to the United States is that there is a, a very deep interest in the paranormal. It is it seems like it's more tightly woven into people's day to day lives. Absolutely. Does, so does this predispose people? And and we we come back here to the I'll call it the psychological issue where. 
it, it appears that if people are open to these kinds of experiences, that they're simply more likely to happen to people. Do, do you think that there's any truth to that statement in light of what you know about South American culture? Well, the fact is that you're absolutely right. The, uh, it used to be that there was more of a willingness uh, among people from every single avenue of life to, let's say, be more accepting of paranormal phenomena, certainly of the UFO phenomenon when it became so big, I, I'm guessing as of the 1950s. A lot of people came from a background of spiritism or spiritualism. Mm-hmm. A lot of people read metaphysics very seriously. I remember uh, the neighborhood I lived in Mexico had a, um, let's say, the local expert who was a professor of metaphysics, and he would have meetings at his house. I guess lots of people would come over to read uh, whatever, I guess, Camille Flammarion or whatever they were reading at the time, uh, old 19th century books. And, of course, his group eventually began attracting the spiritists, the followers of Alan Kardec, uh, people getting together to do their spiritist prayers, all that stuff. So you have that. If, if you have a, a, a layer cake of paranormal belief, you'd start with, let's say, the syncretism of Christianity, native religions, the African influence. Then you'd start going, okay, well, let's think about an interest in metaphysics. Then let's add on to that another layer of Kardashian spiritualism, then let's superimpose on that the UFO phenomenon. So many people in a number of countries simply took to UFOs immediately. They just said, okay, the UFOs come from other planets, therefore they are a more advanced level of spirit that we could contact through our own seances or whatever they were doing. Now, that led to contacteeism coming much greater and much more entrenched in Spain, Mexico, and Argentina than it ever was stateside. Stateside, I think you still have your contactees. I, I, I see them on the Internet every so often. We still think about the uh, the old Space Brother crew, uh, Gene Van Tassel, mm. all, all those folks. Yeah. George Van Tassel, I'm sorry. But in, in Latin America, the contactees are still a major, major force within ufology. But as we speak, there's been a sea change. And the sea change is people have either become what I'm going to call neo-skeptics. After a decade of X-Files and media bombardment, they have now turned against the subject of ufology. It's very sad to see authors who wrote extensively about it suddenly turn skeptic and say it was all lies, we were lied to, I may have lied to my, to my readers. So there's a, there's a lot of heavy drama going on right now. And of course, as people feel, well, these were just lies, they're demanding more proof, which is, you know, I guess the uh, the correct approach. But at the same time, they're throwing out the big, you know, the proverbial bathwater, which after so much tolerance, it's very sad to think. Now, would you say, I mean, there are probably listeners who heard you make that statement that would then assume that this is a triumph of government-sanctioned disinformation against the topic, and would also at that point say, well, then it sounds like South American media is falling into bed with the corporate media that we have, for example, here in the States. Would you say that that is something that's potentially, possibly, partially true? It's a fair assumption. I think just watching, for example, uh, 
and no one has to leave the country. Anyone who can, you know, the broadband, who can tune in one of the Miami channels can see Peruvian programming, uh, Chilean programming. You can see how technically, uh, compositionally, it's indistinguishable from our own way of entertaining the masses. Now, when it came to UFOs in the um, in the 90s, which will, I guess will be the high watermark of ufology for many years, people really took shows like The X-Files to heart. Uh, we've got millions of viewers mm -hmm. simply believe that this was it. Others just watched the documentaries of simply thought, look at all these Japanese and American people and Germans and British coming down to shoot documentaries here. There must be something. The 90s are over. Some hoaxes are unveiled. And now people feel, you know, what, what was going on? This is foolishness. We were wasting our time. Maybe those who saw that the Chupacabras was really President Salinas in Mexico or that UFOs are really represent imperialism, something or the other. I mean, these are other psycho social, social psychological theories that were being advanced at the time. Psychosocial, actually, I think. Um, this now has, I guess, reached its maturity, has reached fruition. People now feel, look, this is just foolishness. We wasted our time. Um, now that everyone has a... Um, a camcorder, a digital camera, everyone has Photoshop, we can all create wonderful, stunning hoaxes. People present uh, lens flares as UFOs. So the currency of what was once so rare, so valuable, a UFO photograph, is now completely debased. No one even wants to know if you have a photograph. Because, as I said, basically, that's very much UFO inflation. Uh, it'll come down to that. Mm. Well, certainly a photograph without corroborating witness testimony is just a photograph, and photographs are of tremendous interest to us on the Paracast. Um, we on the show here have been involved in uh, debunking and analyzing a number of photographs of reported UFO activity. And, you know, ultimately, even if you take a photograph and you can prove conclusively that it has not been fabricated or hoaxed, if you have a photograph of a truly unknown object, in the end, that's all you really have, is a photograph of an unknown object. The, the photograph doesn't tell you anything about what the object is, where it originated, who's controlling it, and what it's doing here. A photograph doesn't tell you any of those things. So, ultimately, if we don't have witness testimony, and we have a photograph that we can prove is anomalous, that we can prove is genuine, it doesn't tell you anything about the phenomenon. It just basically is a photograph. But, but that said, as we look at the history of South American UFO encounters, Scott, clearly there are episodes that, um, and when you say that there are episodes that have emerged as hoaxes, I'm going to ask you to, to elaborate on a couple of those. But then also, there are episodes that, to my mind, can't be hoaxes. And, and I can certainly, for one, think of this thing that we saw in Caracas in 1974, that there was no way that that was not what it was. It was not a, a human craft. It was something massive in the sky. It vanished right in front of us. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people saw it. So, and, and the thing is, and I, it, I think it bears repeating here, I've been accused by some people of saying, you know, that I'm, I'm making this up, uh, even though my brother came on and corroborated the story. They're, they're, I've been accused of, of, of saying that I'm trying to tell this to people so they'll believe me. And what I've had to say over and over again, Scott, I mean, it's real simple. 
people's belief in what I'm saying has no effect on the reality of what happened to me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, my reality exists outside of their belief. And I think that for a lot of people in South America who lived through these things, whether or not an American thousands of miles away believes them has no impact on the reality of their experience. So that said, I'm, I'm curious, can you name us a couple of cases that were popular that then later emerged as clear examples of hoaxes? Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies in Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bienni. We are exploring Latin American UFOs with Scott Corellis. And the question on the table, sightings that really looked impressive at first glance, but in retrospect turned out to be something else. Scott? Well, I think perhaps I misspoke earlier. It's, we have a lot of cases that perhaps in recent years have turned out to be less than what they were. But I was thinking much more of the work of researchers being decried as hoaxing or mm. uh, exaggeration of some sort. I really do admire one of the writers, uh, researchers, who's fallen into disgrace. I don't even really want to mention his name. But he happened to be Spain's most published author of UFO material. A great documentarist has traveled around the world, yet suddenly the entire community turned against him 
And they said, no, these things are fabrications. Of course, I don't think he's ever decided to get into the into the bullring and uh, take on these, these these accusations. But this seems to have affected very, very many people. Now, that said, moving back to cases that turned out to be fraudulent, I would have to go way back into the past to um, the Umo case. Perhaps your listeners may may not know what Umo is. They have certainly seen the sightings, the, the photographs of a pipan-shaped UFO with a strange letter H in its belly. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with that image. Sure, that's that, a, that's a classic image. That was that image was debunked, right? That's correct. Not only was the image debunked, the whole underlying mythology of Umo was eventually debunked by the perpetrator himself, by Jose Luis Jordan Peña. This is a gentleman who decided to see it wasn't possible to take advantage, I'm guessing, of the public imagination and create this entire world, a world where everything was perfect, where you had these very rational, very blonde Cartesian aliens coming from a planet, uh, planet Umo, which is 37 light years away, orbiting the star Wolf 424. It looked like something out of the Jetsons, really, by his descriptions of it. But people really fell for it. Books were written. The photographs that everyone saw in San Jose de Valderas, in Aluche, the landing, these all turned out to be forgeries. But the myth took off on its own. And mainly it had to do with the fact that these space aliens really loved correspondence. So <laughs> they had letters with that emblem, that strange H with a crossbar through it, circulated throughout the world. And the idea was if you were a UFO researcher and you received one of those letters from Umo, uh, you were being given cutting edge information on technology and I guess astro propulsion. And it turned out that this was cutting edge in, uh, information here on Earth. This was just like very, very advanced theoretical physics. But I guess at the time, everyone thought, well, it must be from outer space. Mm. And it simply became some, I mean, Jacques Vallée received letters. I'm not sure if John Keel would have received letters. But certainly, the Omites, as they were called, loved writing, and they simply papered the world with their correspondence. And of course, they had correspondence everywhere. People who would, let's say, would say, would say well, I ran into one of the Umites on the street and he gave me this letter to mail to hand to someone. So this just had a life of its own. And eventually, once the hoaxer came out and said that he had created not just this one particular hoax, but another entirely different hoax that also captured quite a number of imaginations. Folks began questioning, okay, if we believed in Umo since 1970, 1968, what else could be untrue? And that episode from the 70s begins the unraveling of belief in a lot of other things. You know, it's funny when you said the name Umo, it's almost as if he was giving a very subtle clue away he would have completed the clue by saying, Umo y espejos. You are exactly right. That's okay, okay, gentlemen, what does that mean? Well, Gene, see, here's the thing. Umo is the Spanish word for smoke. And when I heard that these, you know, this was the Umo, 
I thought, okay, uh, you have humo, smoke, and then espejos, mirrors. Smoke, smoke and mirrors, and mirror. right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. I mean, right. it's almost as if the hoax were giving a, a subtle clue in there. That this was one. Yeah, exactly. That's a sad thing. It's really sad that people didn't see right through that. Um, and, and the minute you mentioned that image, Scott, I, I, I distinctly remember that image. That was an infamous photograph for many years that always looked problematic to me. But uh, let's contrast for that that photograph for a moment to a really interesting photograph from the Canaima region of Venezuela. And okay. this is a, this is an area of Venezuela which is, is probably best known for being where the Angel Falls are, the highest waterfalls in the world. Right, um, right. Right. So Canaima apparently, over many years, has had a tremendous amount of UFO activity reported, all sorts of stuff. And there's a photograph that it turns out uh, I, I had been trying to track down the uh, provenance of it for quite a while. And um, as it ends up, uh, this is a photograph that Bruce Maccabee, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, had analyzed in his book, UFOs Are Real. And in fact, we had Dr. Maccabee on the show, and I was talking, I mentioned this one particular image uh, that I thought was one of the most compelling UFO photographs that, that I've ever seen, and how it looked a lot like some of what had been reported and photographed over uh, Gulf, Gulf Breeze, uh, Florida. Right. And uh, Dr. Maccabee said, I know the image you're talking about. It's on the cover of my book. And sure enough, it was the image. And it, it's fascinating, fully, you know, obviously... Uh, a structured metal craft emanating a beam of light going down to what apparently are clouds over a mountaintop. It, it's a fascinating image. It is truly, my belief is that it's one of the most compelling UFO photos I've ever seen. But in researching that photo, I, I found out that this region of Venezuela not only had a tremendous amount of UFO activity, but there were these plateaus, these steps on uh, you know the geographic sort of uh, attributes of the area are that there are there are large sort of uh, flat mountaintops where no human had ever visited these places these were completely unexplored regions of um, that where where basically uh, there could be life species that we are not aware of and a lot of people don't seem to to understand that for example, when it comes to insect species mm -hmm. that we have not discovered, we have not actually found the majority of species of insect that live on the planet. People believe we have, and it turns out we in no way have, have tracked down the majority of species. And that kind of leads me to believe that maybe there's a huge amount of UFO activity over areas like the Kanaima region from the point of view of what appears to be a deep interest on the part of these beings, whatever they are, in terms of genetics. And, and, and I'm bringing all of this up because I'd like you to, to talk for a minute about something I noticed that you've been covering a good amount on your excellent blog, which are uh, this in, intense wave of cattle mutilations that have been going on in Argentina. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. The cattle mutilations go back a number of decades, I think. They had not, we had not had a, a resurgence of them since until around two, the year 2002, summer of 2002. That's when there was that, let's call it a conflagration of mutilations going all over the uh, geography of Argentina, uh, spilling into Uruguay, and that some of them were in Chile at the same time. And these are the traditional cattle mutilations. I call them traditional 
because of, I guess, our own experience. These are where you have bovines showing very, very, very exact slices with the removal of tissue, the removal of eyes, udders, um, anuses cored out. This is what occurred in 2002 and continues happening to this very day. They all seem to be focused in the La Pampa province of Argentina, which is close enough to Buenos Aires, but still rather rather rural. This is just endless pasture land. For those of your listeners who may not know, Argentina used to be one of the world's foremost cattle producers. It had the highest percentage of vets for the amount of livestock that the country has. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of... It, it wasn't a matter of, let's say, you didn't have experts looking into these cases. You had some mutologists and researchers of the paranormal, but largely these were veterinarians going and checking out herds that they had been, you know, whose health had been entrusted to them, you know, uh, as a matter of course. Sure, sure. And they were saying, you know, whatever's going on here, this is very odd. This surgery, these removals, we can't explain it. However, a nation has the duty, I'm guessing, to avoid um, creating widespread panic. So the Argentinian equivalent of, let's call it the Ministry of Agriculture, Ministry mm-hmm. of you know, Cattle, whatever you want to call it, simply said, look, there's no mystery here. There is simply the red-muzzled mouse. This red-muzzled mouse, little tiny little mouse, can go in once the animal is dead and chew it and go into it and remove and eat from within and as fate has as chance would have it uh, whenever it chews something it leaves a perfectly symmetrical I'm guessing incision to it and everyone said oh come on how can you blame this on this little mouse well the authorities in Uruguay went one step further they said no 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 yellow jackets yellow jackets are to blame so you have the two official establishments of those two countries saying, look, we have solved the mystery. It's a mouse in the one country, it's yellow jackets in another. If you people insist on creating a stir over this, we will hold you responsible for any public unrest that occurs as a result. So what happened is that the major newspapers, Clarín, La Nación, uh, that were covering all these stories, simply stop covering so you had small town newspapers picking up the slack when those newspapers were silenced then you had the online versions of those websites carrying the stories uh, I guess creating different layers of deniability the fact is that if confronted the government will tell you look in fact the government will use the excuse of the US Air Force I guess still uses look back in 1968 we had this thing called Blue Book it said UFOs were not a threat. End of story. The Argentinians will say, look, we had Senasa, which is the name of their organization, say that there was a certain mouse that was responsible for all these things. If you people keep on insisting that there's some kind of mystery, let that be on your heads. We've had cases, I think, as recently as last week, and the high strangeness quotient that we were discussing earlier 
is present in this phenomenon just as it is with UFOs. I wanted to mention, first of all, about some future episodes of the Paracast you might want to pay attention to. Coming on October 28th, paranormal and folklore author and lecturer Joseph Citro talks about the great mysteries confronted by humankind. And coming on November 4th, we'll hear from senior scientist Boyd Bushman. He'll talk about anti-gravity and other cutting-edge scientific developments. And this, by the way, was an interview some of our regulars on our Paracast forums recommended. You'll hear how it turned out. That's on our November 4th episode. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's our first hour of our elongated session with Scott Corrales covering UFOs in Latin America and lots of other events of high strangeness. And we'll be back in a moment with part two. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're speaking with Scott Corrales, a um, longtime researcher of UFO activity in Latin and Central America and the author of The Inexplicata blog, the Journal of Hispanic Ufology. Scott, uh, you mentioned before the break the high strangeness associated with these recent cattle mutilation cases in Argentina. Could you expand upon that, please? Well, part of the high strangeness would include reports of, of course, UFOs involved with the cattle mutilation aspects of strange creatures uh, being seen, the mutilation of animals not traditionally associated with that particular kind of mutilation, such as guanacos, uh, animals and wild animals, basically. You have the clear belief by some that there's red magic, as it's called, which they say this is blood magic, I guess is the, the easiest way to, uh, to discuss it, playing a major role in these uh, mutilations. So the more you try to just pare the mutilations down to just the cases, just give me the photograph of a cow missing the eyes, missing the udders, you realize that the eyewitness account, or rather not eyewitness, but the, uh, the farmer report that accompanies that dramatic photograph is much more intriguing than the shocking image. Uh, farmers have reported, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of, one good case here that I could give you off the top of my head. Um, all kinds of light, the presence of strange creatures. We had even like men in black appearing during uh, one of these episodes. But I think what I, the image I always want to leave with people, and this is an image that anyone from the States, apparently going down to Argentina hunting, is a very, very big thing. Hunters go down, variety of animals, but... They always say they had no idea it was so hard to get from one place to another. There's a national road of networks, but there's no interstates. Most of these mutilations occurred in farms that are inaccessible during the rainy season and the winter. Once these tracks just turn to huge mud traps, not even the best vehicles can get to these places where the, the animals are being found. The isolation between one farmstead and another is complete. At 6 p.m., using their um, radio sets, 
one farmstead checks in with another to make sure everyone's okay. You may not see your neighbors for weeks on end. So the isolation in which this phenomenon occurs just dismisses completely the possibility that you could have. Uh, well, it's guys in ATVs bringing in bodies or they're taking them here and slicing them for a laugh, bringing them back to scare the, um, the farmers. And if you, okay, here we go. This is a truly high strangeness event. Back in 2002 in the uh, province of Rio Negro, there was that very interesting incident of a farmer coming out, not being able to find his livestock, only to discover much later that 20 of the animals had been deposited. Now, we're talking large I guess uh, Angus, uh, different breeds, Brahmin. Yeah, adult, Angus, adult, yeah, adult cattle. Adult, adult, adult cattle, yeah. Being dumped into what they call an Australian water tank, which is simply a very, very large, um, hatless aluminum tank that holds, I'm guessing, about 20,000 liters of water. That's very common. I've seen them here stateside, but they're very common in, in South America, and I guess they came from Australia. That's where they call that. The authorities corroborated this finally you had these animals floating in this freezing cold water some of them were dead some of them were still alive no answer was ever given as to how these animals could have somehow been dumped by a helicopter or <laughs> fired by a slingshot you know into the water and no one knows to this day that remains the highest strangeness event in all the Argentinian mutilation scenario let me ask you a question about this, Scott. You mentioned red magic, blood magic. Is this related in any way to Santeria? And a, a kind of a corollary question to that, is there any history of Santeria practices that would indicate a potential source for cattle mutilations? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no. Uh, even if you went, let's say, even, let's say that Santeria is more of a white magic belief. It's very much into the... Uh, the, the syncretism between the Catholic saints and the African Orishas, the African gods, you do have the more sinister versions of, um, of Santeria, which would be Palo uh, Mayombe, then it gets worse than that. You become, you get into Nyanigiria, which does have traditionally human sacrifice attached to it. But this red magic, which is blood magic, seems to be more of a Euro, an Eastern European practice brought to Argentina by migrants. And it's simply, I'm guessing, whatever was practiced in the old country, involving, I'm guessing, whatever conjuration. But now that you did mention Santeria, there has been a lot of, let's say, a, a, a great awakening of interest in Afro-Cuban religion, or Afro-Brazilian in this case, mm -hmm. in Argentina and Uruguay, as more and more people, particularly among the poor, the disenfranchised, began seeking refuge in these religions that promised so much in exchange for, you know, just devotion for being part of the extended family of the Babalao or high priest who uh, was in charge of the rituals. And this takes us into another tangent. Allegedly, there's been an increase in episodes of, let's say, paranormal activity toward the satanic, demonic possession. And the Catholic priesthood saying that they have tagged this, inc this increase in this kind of activity to the rise in Santeria and other Afro-Brazilian religions in the area. 
Now, that's their, that's their take. All we have are the cases. Is this because um, potentially there has been some diminishing of the power of the Catholic Church in South America, the same day, same way we're seeing that here in the United States? Is this a turn away from traditional Catholicism towards more radical forms of religious expression? I would think so. I think that I'm guessing a centuries of exposure to the Catholic Church and um, and its way of doing things, where you have to you know you tip your hat to the priest as he walks by, or the priest can come over to your house for lunch when you have don't have enough food to feed your own kids. I left the mark, and even though now that that's another um, another deviation, you do see that Protestantism has claimed a very, very strong stake among people who want to worship the Christian faith uh, down in South America. And not only that, people who in the 80s and 90s gravitated towards Santeria. As I, as I mentioned earlier, religion for the disenfranchised, for the poor, uh, the hope that by offering sacrifices to these uh, syncretic deities, you could improve your lot in life, and if you didn't, if, and if that didn't happen, at least you become part of the extended family of the priest who would, the babalao or priest who, who ordained you. You'd always have, I guess, that sense of fellowship that there were other people in that group. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think that you can certainly see that stepping away from from Catholicism, which has always been the unofficial official religion from Mexico down to Argentina. You know, along those lines, and I just I, there's so many tangents we can take off of that. But I want to get back to UFOs for a minute. This is your specific area of expertise. I'm curious to know, in the last 15 or 20 years, do you feel that there is a clear Roswell-level event in South America that should be looked at more carefully? I can think of a couple that potentially qualify. But from your point of view, what would be like the one or two episodes, let's say in the last 20 years, in Central and South America that are, that are Roswell-level in terms of their impact? You know, that's interesting. There have, if, if we talk in terms of, let's say, a, a UFO crash retrieval, then I would say no. However, there have been strange events involving UFO crashes, like the, uh, the, the event in McDonough in Argentina in 1995, which is very, very well documented. You would have perhaps the closest thing to a Roswell-level event. Oh, my gosh, I would like to say the... Um, the Varginha case in Brazil in 1995. Mm-hmm. That was, was that 95 or 96? I think it's 96. Spring of 96. Yeah. April, April of 96. In Chile, you would have the Corporal Valdez disappearance. You might remember he was an army sub-officer who, saw, who disappeared as he approached a UFO. Uh, there was a landed UFO. He had his platoon with him. He approached. His men saw him vanish. When he reappeared, he had a five days growth of beard, which somehow suggested that he had been gone somewhere. There's some kind of relativistic feature of that craft. He had been missing five days, and I think his wristwatch corroborated this. Now, Corporal Valdez himself has sort of put the lie to the fact that he went anywhere. He has he sees it as much more as a very major spiritual event that occurred to him. But so many questions have been raised as to what exactly happened. What did the witnesses really see? Why did Chilean strongman 
Augusto Pinochet want an interview with him uh, in private to see mm -hmm. if there was in fact a message of religious significance being delivered by, I'm going to call it the, the powers that made that event take place. So South America does have its events of that magnitude, but I'm just trying to think something that's become a, a commercial um, well, no, no, not uh, we're not really interested in, in things that are commercially exposed per se. Just in terms of your research, uh, you, you brought up that first event in Argentina in '95 or '96. Could you elaborate on that, please? This was an event that occurred in Mitan in northern Argentina. I think the, the nearest big city is Salta. An object fell. It was seen by all the southern communities. Huge explosion. Huge column of fire. Um, it was seen by a private pilot whose airplane was forced down by, I'm guessing, some kind of magnetism produced by the event. Mm -hmm. The uh, what was interesting about it, I think, efforts are still being made as of this year to see if there's a way of recovering the object, if there were still any remains of it around. There's the fact that so many people, Argentinian officials, foreign officials, allegedly. Um, American intelligence officers operating as part of some kind of Argentine-U.S. exchange program, I forget the details, reported to the site and told the locals, you know, if you guys know what's good for you, you will stay away from, from investigating this case. Don't look into it. We're handling it. This could have been, I'm guessing, if, had it been more accessible, had more people been able to get there, had there been media coverage, I mean, even though we're trying not to compare it in its commercial impact to uh, to Roswell, this could have been something that big, if only we'd had a way of, I'm guessing, have mass media coverage of it. Uh, as it is, it just became something that the magazines covered that has not really even appeared in, in, in book form. Whatever you see um, on the Medan event is either on the internet, it's electronic, or it's been a magazine. Usually, um, Sam is not kind of publications out of Argentina. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. 
You are living in a case with Chiefs and you're the David Piedi. You never know what's going to happen next. During the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we have Scott Corrales, who has been studying Latin American UFOs and other phenomena for a number of years. And I guess the larger question is, how did you get caught up in this crazy business? And it is a crazy business, as David and I realize every single minute. <laughs> well, I'm guessing that I started out by, you know, accident of circumstance uh, being raised in Mexico in the 70s when the interest in UFOs was at its maximum, at that fever pitch, I would say. Just like David living in, in Venezuela, I guess I was at the right place at the right time for all this. Mm-hmm. And not only that, um, our school teachers were very, very interested in the, um, in the phenomenon. And they were sort of telling us, well, they, they were believers in the extraterrestrial source of the phenomenon. They were saying, well, look, by the time you grow into adulthood, contact will have been made and you will probably be shaking hands with people from other planets. So wouldn't it be great for you when you're our age? I look back and I think and I laugh. But the fact was that we had radio shows, we had TV shows, we had all the magazines. Not only that, but almost daily reports of sightings from Mexico City, from neighboring Cuernavaca. You had officials reporting seeing things you had the blackouts that were caused by ufos including a major major blackout in the city of cuernavaca which is let's say the resort town for mexico city where you had the uh, governor the state governor um calling in the ufo sighting from his the, the governor's mansion as a blackout was taking place so i think that the level of importance given to what was going on was such that there was no question that this was real, that this was important, that it was not a waste of time to be involved with this. And of course, once I left Mexico and moved to Puerto Rico, I found myself again in a, an island only about 100 miles long by 44 miles wide, with all of these same events playing, playing themselves out again. The same magazine coverage, the same radio coverage, same journalistic coverage, people actually believing, speaking freely, uh, to me, I think one of the strangest things, I guess, being 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 Hispanic, is that other people feel some kind of shame to discuss it. No, look, this happened to you. You just talk about it. If people think that you're strange, if people think you know less of you, well, that's their problem. Uh, and yet, I'm, I'm, I've always always from reading Anglo-Saxon cases from an, an Anglo-Saxon milieu, shall I say? There was this. People felt they should keep it to themselves because they'd be letting, I guess, people in their church down or the family down. And then people having psychological issues over having repressed these things. And that's something that I think you do see a cultural divide being clearly present. But then again, that could be a person observation only. Now, having gone into this particular crazy business, do you have a day job that you do when you're not chasing after UFOs and strange mysteries? Yes, thank God. <laughs> I'd hate to do this 24-7. So, yes, I'm a, I'm a uh, technical translator for the oil and steel industries. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So how many languages do you speak? Uh, I think just English and Spanish. <laughs> I've worked very well for me, but I, can, I also read French and Portuguese. Oh, boy. 
Scott, let me ask you about the Barginia episode, because we've, we've spoken to Dr. Lear about this episode, and we've done some other looking into it, and um, there's some very weird things that emerged from, from the reports of that, the idea that there were live creatures somehow captured, the idea that uh, one of the policemen who grabbed one of the creatures supposedly died 20 or 25 days later, and this was supposedly someone who was very healthy and who grew very sick. Have you done any research yourself into the Varshinia episode? And is there anything that you can tell us about this we might not have read anywhere? I'm just curious, because it does really seem almost like a modern-day Roswell in many ways. Well, I, I, I think probably you know more about it. Have we spoken to Dr. Lear, who went down to the area? I just remember the sensation at the time of having written a couple of articles, and certainly having read a lot that was being sent in by... I'm guessing of Portuguese sources and people from Mexico who were down there at the time. There was a detail that struck me that I don't think was ever highlighted in some of the magazines that appeared stateside. That was one of the creatures was actually seen, I guess it was wounded, injured, or I guess as, as, as you're suggesting, putting out massive doses of radiation at the garden area of a ritzy restaurant in that town. Hmm. And the dinner guests, people at this very, very expensive supper club, saw one of the creatures. And I'm wondering, did any of those folks suffer any ill effects from their exposure yeah. to, to this creature who was hot, shall we say? Beyond that, I think it's, yes, it does have its Roswell-like features, because it's, it's uh, I guess it's a crash, there was a, the retrieval, I guess, the object. Mm-hmm. You do have the uh, the creatures, I guess, eventually they're, they're pickled somewhere. If they, if they were, in fact, creatures of... Because then again, I know that everyone wants to see this through an E.T. prism, and, which doesn't happen to be mine. I see these things much more as a paranormal thing. And it just makes me wonder if our... And now you're going to think I'm crazy. Our neighbors from the universe or universes parallel to our own do have technology that while stunningly, you know, in advance of our own, does have its own problems, its own defects. And that's why when they try to cross from their world into ours, they have crashes, they have all kinds of other incidents. So you have creatures like, like these who seem to produce radiation. What kind of a world must that be? I mean, some will say, okay, that's bizarre world if you want to go into the comic book sensibility of it. But I've never quite seen these phenomena alien. There's something much too worldly, much too terrestrial, much too close to the mythologies of a number of, 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 of cultures. So that's always been my take. On the Paracast, we wouldn't Im- immediately call that a strange take. That's a, a topic we've discussed quite openly and quite extensively here. Uh, uh, we've gotten into a little bit of heat with some of our guests. I mean... I've gone head to head with Stan Freeman about this, where you know he talks about nuts and bolts, and I've said to him, you know, there's not a nut nor a bolt found in any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> the only nuts, of course, are the people that we deal yeah. with, including ourselves. But right. I didn't but, want to no, say that. Sure. No, no. But seriously, I mean, ultimately, to our way of thinking, and I think I can speak for both Gene and myself here, and we we haven't seen any hard proof that these are quote-unquote aliens from another planet. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true, and, and certainly a constant topic of conversation on this show is that perhaps this is uh, 
something that these beings, whatever they are, would want us to believe uh, because it makes them much less threatening to us. You know, if, if, if I've said this on the show before, if they're from another planet, they come here, they do what they want, and then they go away. Whereas if they're from here, maybe in a dimensional offset, then the idea that they're constantly among us outside, right outside of our vision, right outside the periphery of what we can see, that this is potentially much more threatening to us. I don't think there's any reason to think that that's certainly not a possibility. And further, you start to, to realize, for example, you look at the planet Earth and you look at the degree to which human beings have penetrated the surface of the planet and how much we know about what goes on in the planet. Um, I'm not going to take it to the wacky shaver point of view that Gene will in, uh, undoubtedly bring up because I, I mentioned this. Uh, but shaver no, who? Not, shaver, you mean like, like yeah, a yeah. Chick or Gillette? What? No, like the other show, a Dicky Shaver, the guy who invented dog biscuits. Seriously? No, but seriously. Well, we haven't. If the Earth were an orange, we, with all of our technology, have not penetrated the top layer of the skin of the orange. We don't know what goes on underneath of the crust of this planet. We have not one clue. We have some ideas. We know that there's a tremendous amount of heat, a.k.a. energy down there. We know that there is some amount of liquid iron that is producing the magnetic field around the planet. And that's about it. We, we really don't know a whole lot more. We actually do know in some very deep core tests that there's water much lower uh, in the planet's uh, mantle than we thought was possible. We know that. So when we talk about the sourcing of these things, uh, I think, Scott, you'd be very comfortable coming back on the Paracast because of the fact that we do talk about interdimensional possibilities. And, of course, it's always important to, to mention the fact that if there were a species that had figured out some way to travel between stars and to go faster than the speed of light, that a byproduct of a technology that would let them move faster than the speed of light would almost undoubtedly be a technology that would allow them to transverse dimensional constraints in ways that we do not even vaguely at this point in time understand. So when you talk about an interstellar traveler, it seems uh, almost obvious, I think, that by definition, interstellar travel involves interdimensional technologies. And, and once you, you come to that conclusion, and I think it's a somewhat reasonable conclusion, then how does one differentiate between an interstellar versus an interdimensional being? Or even going further than that, what about an interstellar being that has figured out a way to create a long-term permanent outpost on the planet that conceals their existence here by means of dimensional tricks? That this is not such a, a an outrageous assumption. I think at this point, and again, certainly this is the stance of the Paracast, all of these possibilities are on the table. They're all open to this to discussion because uh, we do not have a vested, protected point of view that we are trying to defend. And this is really important. In order to move the conversation about the source of UFOs and the reality of what these things are, in order to move it forward, we have to realize that 60-some-odd years of talking about Zeta reticulans or interstellar travel, 
it hasn't gotten us anywhere. We're, we're no closer now to understanding what's going on than we were 60 years ago. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We have Scott Corrales, who has covered Latin American UFOs and other mysteries, and he talks of it from a paranormal point of view, which fits in large part with what we're talking about. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to look at considered dimensional travel, look at the movie Contact, how uh, Jodie Foster, I wasn't, it wasn't the greatest uh, movie in the world, but went to another star system, and maybe she didn't go anywhere at all. Didn't move. Wasn't that Gary Busey in that in that movie? No. Wasn't that Gary Busey? Wasn't it was one of the Busey brothers was in that movie? Might have been Chicky Busey, the guy who invented the Bloody Mary. I understand. I knew him well because he said that after serving you, he had given it up and he'd gone back to orange juice. I don't drink that stuff anyway, so I know you're lying now. Uh, uh, but seriously, I mean, if you think about a lot, one of the other beliefs that's very prevalent in uh, in South America, it's the belief in intraterrestrials. And the intraterrestrial origin of UFOs has always been a big sell. In fact, in Argentina itself, there's always been the, the belief that there's an intraterrestrial city in the Andes. Really? Called Erks, uh, E-R-K-S. And this has always been, been seen as the province of the contactee, the metaphysician, the, um, the whacked out space brother follower. Yet you do get a lot of cases that do report, let's say, we did see a UFO over the mountain, it suddenly got absorbed into the mountain or was firing beams at the mountain. Lights came out of the Cordillera. In the cities that can sometimes be seen through the translucent, the translucent mountains or become evident. So there's this entire interterrestrial, um, I'm going to call it a rift that runs through South American ufology. And I guess when you have a, a mountain range as fascinating and terrifying as the Andes, I mean, legends will emerge. But this has become a constant uh, with people of different walks of life, people who are traveling through the mountains, people who are flying in airplanes, having glimpses 
of these cities, which, if not underground, do appear to be in another dimension. Are these real cities? Are, is there anything to them? Are they part of some kind of projection? That's out there. I mean, that's, that's up for debate. Hmm. Hmm. That is, I, I have not heard of those sorts of reports before, Scott. Do you have any correlation about reports like that with stuff that goes on around the world? I mean, do we see any kind of a, of a connection with, uh, for example, the idea, when you say intraterrestrial, we're talking about from, from inside of the planet, right? That is correct. Okay. I'm guessing that we had a lot in the, um, in the 20s and 30s, the belief that Mount Shasta had a city in it of the Lemurians or survivors from Atlantis, something to that effect. In Brazil, since last century, there's been the belief that some of the caves hold vast civilizations, whether they're remnants of Atlantis or proto-civilizations that existed in Brazil, uh, I'm guessing way before the arrival of the Europeans. You see, David, we can't get away from Shaver because that's the Shaver legend. It really is. The Shaver legend, I've not heard of a South American version of Tiros and Diros. Right. That, exactly. that's, that's never come up. These are all usually very advanced, rational, loving. You know. You, well, the Tiros are supposedly advanced and loving. So right. it's the other part that, of course, can be questionable. But the overall legend yeah. that under the Earth we have remnants of an ancient, advanced civilization, that's the fundamental beginning of this. That's a linchpin. And there's a, there used to be an author, I believe he's, I believe he's deceased, named Guillermo Guillermo. Bermera, I think, I, I may be mangling his name, but he was convinced that a lot of these underground cities were linked through tunnels, passageways, some of them physical and remnants of civilizations, of antediluvian civilizations, as he would have termed it, and others purely uh, metaphysical. You could traverse them in spirit, get to this other city underground, come back to your own. And of course, part of that belief includes lights that are seen in the mountains that I believe the contactee crowd calls Zendras with an X, Zendras. And these are not, let's say, transportation booths or anything remotely similar. These are simply orbs you can walk into and have, let's just call it contact, contact with the residents of these interterrestrial cities. So then it's very, very complicated and there's a lot of there's a number of overlaps. You have the metaphysical, the spiritual, the actual sightings and reportings from um, from physical witness appearing in the newspapers and appearing in books. And the fact that, I think we go back into high strangeness. Argentina, Chile, I guess Bolivia to a certain extent, have lots of reports of very strange dwarf-like humanoid creatures. I mean, if you, we have posted so many translations of newspaper reports of these little these incidents with the diminutive beings i mean it's 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 incredible and most of these are assumed by you know the population at large to be interterrestrial they're just little creatures who live in the ground they have a number of different names a number of different names according to country well are we talking about crypto terrestrial creatures are we talking about a, a terrestrial uh, species of mammal that's simply undiscovered? Mm, uh, they're much closer, I think, in nature to, let's say, the uh, pixies, nixies, fairies, brownies, all of these creatures that have 
names in every single language, every single culture on earth, but don't exist, quote-unquote. Well, you know, that raises the overall issue, I guess, the John Keel effect here. Do UFO sightings find themselves maybe screened or mirrored or changed or reflected by our cultural inclinations. So if we have something in our folklore and we see something very strange, it kind of gets merged in our minds and we see something in the way that maybe we expect it to see or we're conditioned to see. So nowadays, of course, we see spaceships and certainly a few hundred years ago it might be elves. But you know what? That's always been a very, um, a very healthy approach. To, to the question. Yet I wondered in the early days of, let's say, the abduction wave of the 90s, or greys are everywhere, greys are taking everything over, you never had any cases of greys coming out of South America. This was going to be my next question. This is going to be a critical question. You never given had any. Is that is any. that indeed the case? Not one? Now you do. But at the time, when everything was simply, you know, fever pitch, people hallucinating greys, none. None at all. I'm thinking about cases in Spain around the same time. No, no greys. The aliens that seem to appear down there were completely different. I mean, even, but then again, we have to go back to, let's say, when all the alien sightings were taking place, where you had either tall, 12 foot tall screaming giants, or you had these tiny little guys. We weren't seeing them here. So then again, you can even take another tack and go to the, um, I guess, a more religious, paranormal approach that would tell us that different demons have different lordship over several parts of the world and they're very respectful of their turf like you know sort of hmm. so that's another approach that could, could could account for that but it only surprised me well then it gets back to the cultural the cultural differences here that seem to be manifested in these cases. Again, why are there no greys down there until recently? Well, well, now, of course, we talk well, about greys. Now we have, of course, movies that feature greys. We have the X-Files that influence the culture around the world. But even, as I'm trying to think, even, even when science fiction lore was at its uh, Star Trekiest in the 70s, people were still reporting either monsters, outright monsters, or the blondes that still appear. In South American contact lore, there didn't seem to be this, well, if the media is giving us, let's say, uh, Mr. Spock or Romulans or Klingons or what have you, nothing, nothing seemed to pervade the culture, even though those, those shows were huge. Viaje a las Estrellas is one of the big shows in science fiction from a, from a, science fiction, a Latino science fiction standpoint. Everyone watched it. Well, here's William the Shatner sounds great in Spanish, by the way. <laughs> Señor Shatner. The thing about the proliferation of the image of the greys and uh, the cultural contamination probably would have started in 1977 uh, when Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released. I can tell you that I saw that movie in a movie theater in Caracas in a packed, it was a packed audience. And this was in a, in, a, in a theater that had the really big wraparound screen. It was oh, the, the kind yeah, of the cinerama. Oh yeah, it's the kind of screens you don't see anymore. No cinerama, um, yeah. Oh yeah, and so you know this would have been in, in seventy seven or early seventy eight when that movie is screened down there, and that would have probably been, I'm guessing, the first large scale sort of a, a cultural showing of the image of the small greys. We think about the little creatures that come out towards the end of the movie that take uh, 
that take Dreyfus up into the ship. Do you see a correlation between the appearance of reports of greys and that? And more importantly, Scott, the greys are typically associated with the abduction phenomenon. Do we see a history of abductions in South America, or did this also then sort of piggyback into the appearance of greys down there? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tread very softly on that Okay. Because the abduction phenomenon as it occurred in the Spanish-speaking world does appear to be different. There is a Spanish researcher named Josep Guijarro who was actually studying these cases in his own country. They were very, very, very different. He does, however, believe to have seen a gray on its way to abduct the person he was studying, whose case he happened to be involved with. Now he's not sure if it was a hallucination, was he working too hard, was it some kind of suggestion that made him see this little figure walk, I guess, across the door, along the hallway where he could see it. But he does report the paralysis he felt was very real. Then again, it could have been some kind of dream state he was in. So even now, he's sort of backtracked from it. But that was the one case of actual seeing grays in an abduction that I remember clearly from the 90s, from the late 80s, early 90s, in a Spanish-Latin American context. Most of the abductions were traditional kind. Someone in the wrong place, the wrong time, spaceship lands, you get manhandled, taken aboard. Uh, that seemed to be more more of the, um, the mold for those cases. During the big abduction wave here in the... Um, in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm going to say. Whatever was going on down there in that regard didn't seem to be quite as big. And certainly, with very rare exceptions, I can think of one case in Puerto Rico. Grays were mentioned. Of course, others may have emerged since the last time I actually seriously looked at this to compile information for an article or something. But uh, I don't believe it ever reached the proportions that it had here. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Never know what's going to happen next.
during the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We have maybe 18 or 19 minutes more to spend with Scott Corrales, and we're looking over Latin American cases of high strangeness, some UFO-related, some in the periphery. And I think one of the most interesting things here is having gone through all this, I gather from what you're telling us that you feel there is this kind of 4D factor involved in UFOs, a factor that, of course, we've explored quite extensively on the PowerCast. So now looking at everything, what do you think, is there a single case that you could present to the skeptic and say, here is the case that stands above all to demonstrate UFO reality? Is there such a beast? You know, I'm sure that I could, if I really sat down to think about it, look through all my, my database, there are a number, not that one. I even lose five cases to present skeptics. I just can't think of them, you know, off the top of my head. These would be cases involving, you could, you could always present some ironclad close encounters of the first kind. I mean, you have terrific sightings per country that are still amazing. If you wanted, let's say, we want something with ground effects, I would tell a skeptic, you want the year 2000, you want Azcapotzalco, which is a district of Mexico City. The case involved two policemen reporting to a break-in at a school. It turned out to be a UFO hovering over the school. Uh, lights everywhere, the policemen see it, their cell phones are rendered operative, their squad car radio is inoperative, eventually other units report to the site, they all see it. You have the, all the, the uh, damage to the, I think the, the patrol cars were damaged in some other ways, I don't recall. That would be my close encounter of the second kind that I would present. When it comes to, let's say, a close encounter of the third kind, I would want to always, and I'm guessing, you know, you grew up, you grew up reading these things and they stay with you. The V.S. Boas case from Brazil. That's you read my mind. Oh my God, you read my mind. That's the one to beat. You can't, you can't, you can't top that. Yeah. And I just see uh, uh, Australasian Ufologist magazine, of which I'm proud to be a contributor, is running that as its October feature. And it has, of course, the painting of B.S. Boas confronting the um, female space woman. I'm thinking, you know, that is still the case to be. That will always be the one. Now, Scott, for our listeners who are not familiar with it, could you give a quick recap of the Vila Boas case? Uh, 1952, a Brazilian, it was a 57. You'll have to forgive me on the dates. A Brazilian farmer, Antonio Villas Boas, uh, goes out of his house at night in central Brazil to do some planting because it was cooler to do this at night than during the day. It's commonly done. He sees a light. He tries to escape from the light. There's a foot chase. Small creatures emerge from the craft. He is tackled. He's taken aboard. He's stripped naked. There's, I think, some smoke comes out. He starts coughing. He has reacts violently to what he thinks is some kind of disinfectant. A nude woman comes into the room and of course he's, his description of her is what makes this otherwise a simple so this is somehow tawdry sex scene with a space princess episode. Very, very, very real. At no point does he say that he's attracted to her. He describes her as being rather non-human. The eyes are oddly set. He does use descriptions that are interesting, but her eyes are like those of a fairy princess in a fairy tale. I mean, they're upward sloping almond eyes. He goes to describe her body. They go ahead. They consummate the act. He feels aroused despite his 
situation. Here he is. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He wants more. She disengages and makes that very curious uh, gesture that I think is still today. It's very, very poetic. She points to her belly, then points at the stars. Somehow, he takes this to mean, I'm coming back for you to take you back with me. I think it's like your, our child is going to be out in space. So our union now transcends the confines of your world. You know, this, this, our seed is now of, of the cosmos of infinity, of another dimension, if you, if, you, if you wish. So there are a lot of details that make this a very, very, very interesting case. And of course, the fact that he was hypnotized was one of the very first hypnosis cases. Uh, days earlier, there had been sightings of a teardrop-shaped object that was very similar to the object that he described. So there are a number of factors that make this a very, very compelling case. And anyone who's interested in, uh, in learning more, you uh, should go do whatever you can. Go to your local library, pick up the book, The Humanoids edited by Charles Bowen that contains probably the best recount of the B.S. Boas case. Yeah, actually, there's a pretty detailed description online, uh, www.interstellar-traveler.com in, uh, in their library. There is, I think, probably a direct excerpt from the book, The Humanoids, about the Villa Boas case. And, of course, this also brings uh, into play the idea of a very strong interest uh, on the part of these beings, whatever they are, in human genetics. Now, this is a recurring theme that we see over and over again. And uh, certainly, to my way of thinking about this stuff, there is a clue there. There is a real important clue about the true nature of whatever these beings are. There does seem to be this prevailing interest in not only human genetics, but genetics of all of the life forms on this planet. Uh, and, and Scott, this is, brings me back to, for example, the Canaima region of Venezuela, where you have these, uh, these flat mountains, these uh, tapuis, that um, have these whole ecosystems on top of them, where literally humans have never been. This is, I think this is an important point. We talk about, you know, certainly Venezuela, the Amazon, Brazil, Argentina. In my trip down there, I realized that a vast portion of that country is extremely wild, is, is very remote. We're talking about areas where there are not people for maybe a hundred mile radius. You won't find a human being. Absolutely. Uh, it's hard for certainly the American mind to conceive of such a thing unless you go uh, like I've traveled through one of the most beautiful states in the in the United States is Idaho. Uh, people don't think even that Idaho is a real place. I've driven through Idaho and it's some of the most spectacular land I've ever seen. Where you know you find these little chunks of of housing, you'll find like three or four houses sitting together and then nothing else for twenty or thirty miles where you go into the Amazon and uh, outside of indigenous uh, uh, Indian tribes that, that inhabit the areas, you, know, you won't find civilization for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So if we talk about the idea that whatever these beings are, they're very interested in, in the genetics of the planet, do we see any kind of a correlation between areas that are essentially untouched by humans. And, and again, I keep thinking of the Kanaima region and the appearance of UFOs. I mean, 
and, and let me just now add to that, because this gets even heavier. You said you lived in Mexico. Does this then also have something to do with this vast flap of UFO activity over Mexico City, one of the densest and most polluted cities in the world? Is it a possibility that these creatures are, A, interested in looking at humanity and studying it from the point of view of trying to understand how it is we're destroying ourselves, and then, B, basically acting as a sort of a preservation squad to make sure that the genetics of the planet are not lost in the case that we do destroy ourselves? That would be a very interesting consideration. I never saw it specifically like that, but as you said, there's an interest by these creatures in our genetics, that of other species, and it could even turn out to be that if you think about the going back to the interdimensionality, that there's some way that these, whatever, our neighbors, for want of a better term, sure, sure. are thinking, look, they are self-destructing. Let's see what they have that we could incorporate into our own. Remember, traditionally, in the legends of many people, the other beings that inhabit our reality don't much like us. Or they covet something we have. When it comes to Eastern Europe, you have the little people, the fairies, the gentry, covet our souls. They say, well, look, we are here. We have all these powers to do us no good because we don't have souls. Are they trying to breed somehow into us? And this this makes no sense now. I'm trying to to articulate it. Mm -hmm. That by somehow genetically taking something of our own essence into their own, they should be able to eventually have human souls migrating into their into their species. As I said, very very metaphysical, but that interest. I mean, if they are not bona fide space travelers with who do a galactic survey, collecting specimens here and there, which they could have completed that survey ages ago and gone off for beer or whatever this they do on their planet. <laughs> we only have a few minutes left, Scott, but I wanted to talk about that now. For people who are looking at UFOs as physical phenomena that emerges from other star systems, they're looking at Zeta Reticuli, they've given up on Mars and Venus. Certainly Venus is just too hot a place, of course, but maybe some people still believe they're there. How do you convey to them the information that UFOs are a whole lot more complicated? You know, that's, um, that's hard. That's hard because we when we all come into the UFO field, uh, whether we did it, uh, in the 50s or in the 70s or anyone who's just stumbling upon the field now, which would be somewhat incredible. We all come in thinking about visitors from other planets. I think it's part of the maturation process of reading extensively, consulting as many works as you possibly can, actually sitting down and thinking that these so-called space aliens know too much about us. They seem much too comfortable with planet Earth, not simply because they perhaps had, if they're aliens, they've had bases here for a long time, but they seem to be an integral part of our reality. And I think that this is something that you can't disabuse someone of their belief in the uh, the ETH. This is a, a, a sudden unawareness that you start developing after years of believing in this planet, that planet, this galaxy, the other galaxy. That no, no, there's, it, it doesn't sound right. There's a familiarity. They seem, in a word, too human to be from another planet. 
Hmm. When you say too human, please uh, qualify that. How do you mean? I think that their urges, if they're interested in um, in mating with us, not doing it with you know by simply mixing up cells in a test tube. There's actual copulation, if we believe all we've been told about uh, the abduction phenomenon. This this very very visceral interest in flesh and bone makes them much too immediate, too real. I think that if you were a bona fide space traveler, you would be so concerned about contamination, about not contaminating yourself or contaminating the species you're studying, that you would even just send robots. You would not even want to get yourself involved. Would they have a prime directive like we imagine in Star Trek, where they can't oh, interfere with God, the local don't population? Do this. Stop it. Star Trek was a bad TV show. There's I'm, nothing about that that's relevant. Oh, what's relevant is a prime directive, which oh, is some kind no. of, of code of ethics. Code of ethics. We don't interfere with the local population. Of course, you know. As I'll if tell humans you, had a code of ethics. Of course we don't. We're thinking Give about the aliens. Give me a break. Oh, God, I'm going to be sick. Sorry, Scott. No, okay. no, I'm just going to say, well, if you don't like Star Trek, you can always see it from a Star Wars perspective, which would be... Oh, George Earth. Lucas is an ass. Give me a break. Bad David, David worked. Bad acting. Garbage. Da crap. Well, David worked for George it, Lucas, from I that tell perspective, uh, Earth is the uh, runaway colony of a galactic empire, and they've come back to put us to work. Um, and that no, would I mean, be a pretty grim fate. No, no. It's probably much more likely in all reality that humans and humanity is a genetic experiment and this is the great secret that the governments who have any information about this hide away uh, that we're basically a test tube experiment and uh, maybe that's the real interest in human genetics is because they're coming back to collect the results and they're finding out we were a colossal failure you know uh, well well wanting I don't know that we're a colossal, well, certainly from an ethical point of view, we're probably a vast failure, but uh, from a genetic point of view, we, we might be kind of interesting. And again, it's not just about us. Uh, uh, this is about the genetics of a planet where the variety of species on this planet is so vast that it's for the most part unknown to us. We have not discovered the vast majority of insect species on this planet yet. The The, the variety of life on this planet Look, here's the thing. My guess is that life is actually fairly abundant in the universe. It's just my guess. But it's also my intuition that the diversity of life on Earth may not be so common in the rest of the universe. Maybe on, for a single planet, maybe we have this incredible array of life that may not be representative of what we find on other planets. Maybe other planets are much more uh, monoculture-oriented. And this would, of course, create problems in their adaptability, just like we see problems in on the Earth in terms of monocultures of fish, in terms of fish farming, where these fish get hit by one blight and it destroys the whole population. Maybe that's what's really going on. I mean, again, if we're talking about this in a serious way, leaving Star Trek and Star Wars out of it, guys, because those are both... <laughs> 
bad commercial properties <laughs> done, done to rake in money. They have no real lasting value, especially Star Wars. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, hey before, we do, before we vanish into the yeah, ether, right. or take Sorry ether, depending that. on your point of view, ladies and gentlemen. Scott, yeah. where can we <laughs> find... <laughs> I have a gray hand on my... <laughs> Sorry. Scott, where can yeah. we find more of your writings online? Um, I would um, urge everyone to stop by um, inexplicata.blogspot.com. Give us a visit if you'd like to see some of the latest cases in uh, South America and Spain. Um, my own writings are scattered throughout uh, cyberspace, I guess, uh, Places like uh, ufoinfo.com are a good place to start. ufocasebook.com would be another another good place to go to. Otherwise, some of my more recent work is at the State Magazine uh, website. I'm not sure if it's just fragments of it or if these are full features. Sometimes they have the full feature. Sometimes it's a fragment that's at Fate Mag's website. Hey, Scott Carellis, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. We look forward to having you on again and again. Guys, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Scott. We really do appreciate it. I wanted to mention about some future episodes of the Paracast you might want to pay attention to. Coming on October 28th, paranormal and folklore author and lecturer Joseph Citro talks about the great mysteries confronted by humankind. And coming on November 4th, we'll hear from senior scientist Boyd Bushman. He'll talk about anti-gravity and other cutting-edge scientific developments. And this, by the way, was an interview some of our regulars on our Paracast forums recommended. You'll hear how it turned out. That's on our November 4th episode. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.